This morning we will be considering Genesis chapter 27, beginning at verse 41, going through chapter 28 and verse 22. These are the words of God. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padam Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padam Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padam Aram to take himself a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padam Aram. Also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there were the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, 
Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Our God and Father, we pray now that you would open these words to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Give us understanding and shape us and strengthen us in according to your will, that we might too, might too live in your presence and according to your power and glorify you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a lot going on in this text. And the first thing we see is more of Esau's carnality and cluelessness. First of all, we see it in his hatred for his brother Jacob and his desire to murder him. It is true that Jacob had tricked Isaac into blessing Jacob instead of Esau, but you have to remember the greater context. The blessing was Jacob's by virtue of God's decree which he issued before the boys were even born. And we need to remember also that this should not have seemed strange at all to Isaac because this was following the same pattern that God had established when Isaac received the blessing over his older brother Ishmael. God making the point that his salvation, his covenant, his promises are not about normal human inheritance, but inheritance through Christ. You also have to remember that whatever claim that Esau might have maintained that he held on to residually, he had sold to Jacob. He appraised it, first of all, as being worthless, having no value whatsoever. And furthermore, Esau had demonstrated his entire life that he had no interest whatsoever in all of the covenant responsibilities that covenant headship brought with it. And you also have to remember that the buying and selling of birthrights was a very common and accepted practice in that day. If somebody had the birthright and were going to have all the responsibilities that came with it, and they were not interested in that, then the thing to do was to sell it. And that's exactly what Esau had done. And so... When Isaac and Esau plotted together for the covenant blessing, inheritance, and headship to go to Esau anyway, they were defying the word and will of God. They were setting aside Esau's legal sale of the birthright and basically at that point hijacking what by right belonged to Jacob. And when all was said and done, And it became clear to Isaac what was really going on and how God in his providence, even using fallen means uh, such as deception and so forth, had brought about the end result which God had decreed in the first place. Isaac maintained the blessing to Jacob. 
because he saw that that was God's will and the right result. Now, in spite of all of that, Esau regards himself as the victim, which is one of the hallmarks of the carnal mind, victimhood mentality, which is driven by preoccupation with self, pity toward self, and resentment toward others. So Esau, like Cain of old, hates his brother and plans to murder him. The second sign we see of Esau's continued carnality and cluelessness is his taking of a third wife because he observes Isaac sending Jacob to Rebekah's family to take a wife. So Esau figures his parents don't like the daughters of Canaan. Of course, it never occurs to him in the first place that when he took two Canaanite wives at the same time, that perhaps it would be important that his wives be believers in the true and living God, the one true God, as opposed to idols. Perhaps it would be important that his his wife uh, would be the kind of woman who would fit very well in, in 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 a covenant clan built around faith in the one true God so that she would be a delight to his parents as well as her. But of course, his Canaanite wives were unbelievers and they had driven his parents crazy from the beginning. But none of that occurs to him until this point when he sees some kind of favor or blessing going to Jacob. And he decides he's going to fix the whole situation by taking a third wife, this one an Ishmaelite, instead of a Canaanite. Now, this is another hallmark of the carnal mind. It treats symptoms only. It's like the American Medical Association. It never treats the root cause. The end result of all this, from Jacob's perspective, is that he officially has the blessing. Just as he did when he was in the womb, he officially has the blessing, and yet somebody is always wrestling against him. In the womb, his brother wrestled against him. As a man, his brother and his father wrestled against him. Now that his father has confirmed the blessing to Jacob, his brother still wrestles against him by seeking to kill him. So Jacob has to flee. He has to go away. Now, there's a legitimate reason, an innocent reason for him going, because he needs to take a wife from his mother's family in Haran. That's true. But here he has to go in haste, as he would later say he leaves with only his staff in his hand. He has to flee because his brother is seeking to kill him. And though Jacob doesn't know it, When he gets to his mother's family, the wrestling is going to continue because his uncle Laban is a money grubber and a manipulator of the first order, and he is going to use and abuse Jacob for almost 20 years. So Jacob sets out all alone and with everything seemingly against him, even though he has the blessing. Now, Haran, where he's heading, is almost 500 miles north of Beersheba, where Jacob's family is. And a day's journey back in that ancient world 
was 20 to 25 miles. But Jacob is alone here. He's traveling light, so he's able to make better time. He's trying to make it all the way to Luz in a single day. Luz is about 45 miles north of Beersheba. So that is a real day's journey, and he doesn't quite make it. Darkness catches him before he gets all the way to Luz. So he has to bed down for the night. He's all alone, and he's in the middle of nowhere. But as he sleeps, God is going to open Jacob's eyes to the truth. He is not alone because God is with him. And he is not in the middle of nowhere. He is at the house of God and he is at the gate of heaven. So when he awakens, he proclaims, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. How awesome is this place? This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Because as Jacob slept, the Lord gave him a dream in which he saw a ladder or a stairway connecting earth with heaven. And he saw angels ascending and descending, going up and down on this ladder or stairway. And he saw the Lord standing above it, who spoke to Jacob, verses 12 and 13. Now, these basic elements that we have here are similar to other biblical accounts of when the Lord manifests his glory and presence. That is, when the Lord makes his glory and presence visible to the human eye. In most of these descriptions, the Lord will speak to the person or persons to whom he has made his presence and glory visible. And you will have angels present who are moving about in some way. They're either going up and down as described here, or they are going to and fro as described by Ezekiel in chapter 1 of his book, where he says that the angels or living creatures, as he calls them, were running back and forth, Ezekiel 1.14. And he says, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like torches going back and forth, and like flashes of lightning, verses 13 and 14. Ezekiel said that above the heads and the stretched out wings of the living creatures was a firmament, in other words, an expanse, would look like crystal, he said. And above that was the likeness of a throne, And on the throne was the appearance of a man whose head was high up above it and who had all around him the appearance of fire with brightness. And it was from the throne that the Lord spoke. Ezekiel 1, 22 through 28. Now the Ezekiel describes all of that, that whole scene, as being the glory of the Lord. Verse 28. Now, all of this detail, the angels going to and fro, the expanse like crystal, the likeness of a throne, the likeness of a man on it, all of that detail he can only see when the glory or presence of the Lord got very close to him. When it was in the distance, he described it as a whirlwind, as a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself and brightness all around it and radiating out of it, Ezekiel 1 verse 4. So this fire 
is not normal fire in the way that we would think of it. It is the glory of the Lord, which the angels are reflecting and then radiating outward. That's why the burning bush that Moses saw in Ezekiel chapter 3 did not burn up because it wasn't normal fire. It was the glory of God being radiated by the angels who were all around the Lord. So all of these various biblical descriptions, the burning bush, the whirlwind of fire, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud and fire, the ladder, the staircase of angels going up and down, they're all describing the same thing, which is the presence and glory of the Lord made visible to the human eye. Now, this same manifestation of the Lord's presence and glory is what filled the tabernacle and then later the temple in the Old Testament. Exodus 40, verse 34, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 38, for the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. So with that setting and that background, understanding that what Jacob sees here is the presence and the glory of the Lord made visible to him so he can see it, we need to recognize that the one appearing to Jacob from heaven and speaking to him was Christ pre-incarnate. In other words, God the Son, before he was incarnated as a man in the person of of the Lord Jesus. Consider what Jesus says to Nathanael in John chapter 1 verse 51. Most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What Jesus is telling Nathanael in so many words is that He is Jacob's ladder. Wherever Jesus is, there is a joining of heaven and earth. Consider what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3.13. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. So Jesus talking to Nicodemus standing on the earth, not opening Nicodemus's eyes to see his glory, but just appearing to be a man to Nicodemus, tells Nicodemus that he, Jesus, is in heaven. So Jesus, when we put all this together, is the gate of heaven. Jesus is the house of God. 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the living stone, the cornerstone on which the whole temple of God is made. And we become living stones by the Holy Spirit and we are joined to Jesus so that we become a living temple. So that both individually and collectively the Holy Spirit uh, inhabits us. And so what this means is that everything that was true of the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament, which was really a picture of Christ. Everything that was true of the tabernacle and temple is true of Jesus, only more so. Jesus is where heaven and earth meet. 
Jesus is where God and man meet. Jesus is where sin stops and forgiveness begins. Jesus is where death stops and life begins. Jesus is where bondage stops and freedom begins. Jesus is where sinners meet with the living God and are received as sons and daughters. So with that background and understanding, let's look at what the pre-incarnate Christ said to Jacob from heaven. First in verse 13, the first phrase, he identifies himself. I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Now, Jesus confirms in another text in John that he is the one speaking here. John 8, 56. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, said Jesus, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? You have to remember, Abraham lived almost 2,000 years before Jesus. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I am is the Hebrew name for God. It is, it's what Yahweh or Jehovah, it's what they mean. It means I am. I am the self-existent one. I am the eternal one. I am the infinite one. I am the promise-keeping, promise-making, never-changing, never-failing God. And so Jesus is taking the name of God and applying it to himself. He's saying he was the one appearing to Abraham. He's the one appearing to Isaac. He's the one appearing to Jacob. Secondly, Christ repeats the promises of Abraham that God, that he previously made to Abraham, the promises that center around land and seed or descendants. Verse 13. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now you have to remember here, when you see the word descendants and when you see the word seed, in the Hebrew, it's the exact same word. And the word is in the singular tense. Okay, it's talking about a seed singular. But it's talking about a single person who sums up a whole multitude of people. Okay, it's talking about a single person who sums up a whole multitude of people. So to thinking of it as a single person and thinking of it as a multitude of people, is they're both correct. And that's why it keeps bouncing back between the word seed and the word descendants. Now, these promises will be preliminarily fulfilled when God builds the descendants of Jacob into the nation of Israel. And through Joshua, the leadership of Joshua, who sums up the nations, there's that idea again, gives them conquest of the seven nations of Canaan. But it was also a picture of the ultimate fulfillment of these promises, which is through Christ. And remember, Jesus' name, his Hebrew name was Joshua. Okay, Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew 
Joshua. So it's the ultimate fulfillment that is going to come through Christ, the great Joshua, the seed of Abraham, who sums up the countless multitude of those Old Testament and new who were joined to him by faith. And whereas in the Old Testament, in the preliminary fulfillment, they received a physical military conquest of the seven nations of Canaan, the disciples of Christ are going to receive a discipleship conquest of all the nations of the earth, ultimately through the resurrection of life, completing and restoring all of glory, God's glorious intentions for man's and the earth, which he promised from the beginning. Now, this idea of a preliminary fulfillment and then the ultimate fulfillment, this is why we see Paul in Romans 4, when he references God's land promises to Abraham, Paul changes the word land to world. He goes from land to cosmos. Romans 4.13, for the promise that he would be heir of the world cosmos was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And when you go back and read the promises in Genesis, they all refer to the land. They don't refer to the cosmos. They refer to the land of Canaan. Paul changes it. How can he do that? Because he knows what was really being promised. Yes, the land of Canaan is an actual land. Yes, it was actually given and taken. Yes, that's true. But it was a picture of the Christ's conquest of the entire world. When Paul references God's promise to Abraham of being a blessing to the nations, he says that it was referring to the gospel of Christ going to the nations. Galatians 3 verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the nations, by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. And when Paul references God's promise of seed or descendants, he says it was ultimately referring to Christ and all those joined to him by faith. Galatians 3.16 Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, And to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, singular, who is Christ. Verse 29, and if you are Christ, that is, if you are joined to him by faith, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Finally, Christ concludes his talk with Jacob by reiterating the promise and the blessing that he gave to Abraham which is the foundation of all the other promises and blessings. Verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. That's the foundational promise. If God is with us, we have everything. If God is not with us, we have nothing. And consider the comparable way in which Jesus finished the great commission matthew 28:20 20, lo i am with you always 
even to the end of the age. Now, Jacob responds to all of this in the only appropriate way. He worships God, which is exactly what the New Testament tells us to do, Romans 12, 1 and 2. In view of the mercies of God, I beseech you, brethren, present your bodies as living sacrifices. That's worship language. God gives his whole self to us in Christ. We are to give our whole selves to him in response, in worship. And so Jacob signifies this by making a memorial pillar using the rock that was at his head, a memorial pillar to the God who is with him. He, he names this location. Now, Luz is the nearby village or city, but he's out in the middle of nowhere before Luz. He renames this location Bethel. House of God, that's what that means. House of God. It may look like the middle of nowhere. He says this is really the house of God. And he takes an oath to tithe to God, verses 20 through 22, which is God's appointed way of owning him as Lord and King. You have to remember in the ancient world, when you were acknowledging someone as the king and your king, you you didn't just say words. You took an appropriate gift to the king and presented that king, which was done publicly. It was done publicly. You did it in front of other people. This is the king and this is my king. And so in the Bible, when you look at the Old Testament theology, the tithe was that gift. That was the way that you publicly owned God as the king and your king was by giving that gift. And so that is what Jacob is promising to do. Now, it's interesting when he says he's going to give a tenth, and that's what the tithe means. It simply means a tenth. The verb form there indicates multiple occasions. In other words, this is going to be an ongoing practice, ongoing tithes, ongoing gifts to God, acknowledging God as Jacob's king. It is not a case where he is bribing God on condition of a wait-and-see type of skepticism, which is the way some people have interpreted this. No, he's indicating this is an ongoing practice going forward in his life. So Jacob's perceptions of being all alone and in the middle of nowhere with no one in his corner turn out to be not at all accurate. Christ opens his eyes to see the truth. Have people been wrestling with him his entire life, including in the womb? You betcha. Are they going to continue to wrestle with him? You betcha. But Jacob, this is not random. Jacob is not alone. God is with him. His hand is upon him. God is in all this. But Jacob going forward is going to have to live in light of what he now knows. He must remember the truth. He must live by faith going forward because he's not going to be able to see this vision every single day. God is not going to appear to him again until many years into the future, many years into the future. He has to live. He has to live in the dark, remembering what he saw in the light. And he has to live in light of that, just like we do. So for our application this morning, I want to focus in on what it means for God to be with us. 
Because that's the fundamental promise to us as well. Christ says, I am with you. We, like Jacob, face many hardships, and especially in times of hardship, that's when we tend to feel like we are all alone, everything is against us, and no one is in our corner. So I want to look at what the Bible teaches. What does it mean for God to be with us? So let's look at this idea uh, of God being with us. Well, the first thing is we need to recognize is the Bible speaks of God being both far and near to those whom he love. He is far away. He is also near. God is far in the sense that he is transcendent. That is, he's not part of the universe. He stands above the entire created order. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. And in that sense, he is infinitely far from us. He's infinitely exalted above us. He does not need us, nor is there anything that we can add to him. Paul says this in his sermon in Acts chapter 17 to the philosophers of Athens. Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands. What he's saying is those powers that are in your pagan temples, those are demonic powers. Those are not God. God is God. He is not part of the cosmos. Verse 25, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives life and breath and all things to all. But in another sense, God is infinitely near to us, even to those who hate him, deny him, reject him, and suppress the truth about him. Acts 17:27. though he is not far from each one of us, for in him... We live and move and have our being. So God is transcendent, above, outside, not part of the creation, and yet he is imminent, everywhere present, within the creation. And then we see in the Bible a second sense of God being far and near, which relates to whether the Lord personally identifies to someone, whether he takes personal interest in them. Psalm 138, verse 6. The Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly. The Hebrew word here means that he fixes his gaze upon the humble. Okay? Uh, We would say that God zooms in on them so that he can take detailed interest in their life. But the proud he knows from afar. He does not zoom in. He knows everything about the pride, but he does not take that kind of personal investment interest in their lives. So what exactly does it mean for God to zoom in on somebody, to, to fix his gaze on them, to personally identify with them? A lot of things I'm going to give you four very quickly. Number one, it means that God takes personal interest in every detail of our lives. Psalm 139, verse 1, David writing, O Lord, you have searched me. There's that zoom in. You have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought from afar. 
You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There's, there's that kind of intimate knowledge. Now, God knows everything about everybody. But for those who are his, you have this kind of personal interest in every detail of their lives. Number two, it means that God is always with us and his hand is always upon us. Verse 5 of Psalm 129, you have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. That's what Jacob came to realize. He thinks he's in the middle of nowhere. He's all alone. It's like God has hedged him in and placed his hand upon him. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Jacob had never seen the presence of God before, but he came to realize that God's presence was with him all the time. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, that's Sheol, the abode of the dead, in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, in other words, if if we should go down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, which is the deepest place on earth in the Pacific, I think it's like seven miles beneath sea level, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Number three, it means that God is for us. He is for us. He set his love upon us before we even existed. Verse 13, you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. Verse 16, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. This is what the Bible means when it says that God foreknew someone. It doesn't mean that God is passively looking forward down the corridors of time and seeing that something is going to happen or somebody is going to be. No, it means that he actively knew us before. He knew us before we were. He set that kind of personal investment and being for us before we ever existed. That's what it means for God to foreknow someone. And so in Romans 8:29, when it says, whom God foreknew, that's what it's talking about. Whom God knew before, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, These he also called by the Holy Spirit. He brought them to faith and repentance by the Spirit working faith within us. And he joined us by faith to Christ. These he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. He declared them, he rendered the verdict that they are perfectly righteous because Christ is perfectly righteous. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Our glorification, which is in the future, awaiting the great resurrection of life, God speaks of in the past tense, because it is that sure, because God does not try to save anyone. He saves. He doesn't try. He saves, and it ultimately relies upon him, thank God. 
Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? People, things, people and events may wrestle against us all the time. But ultimately, who can be against us? Because God is for us. And number four, finally, it means that God works all things together for our good, Romans 8, 28. We know all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. What does that mean for all things to work together for our good? Does it mean that everything that comes our way is fun? Most definitely not. A lot of things that come our way are not fun. That's why they're good for us. Because God is using them to conform us to the image of his son. That's what it means for everything to work for our good. So all of this is what Jacob is learning and discovering. It's been true his entire life. But now he sees it. And now he lives, needs to live in light of it. Just as we must. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.